Welcome to the CFO Playbook, where we bring you insights and strategies on how the many obstacles facing the heads of finance functions internationally are being tackled. I'm your host, Franz Fabadnost. I'm the UK content lead at Soldo. And each episode, we help you grow your team, your company, and perhaps most importantly, yourself. Today, we welcome on the show Robin Dunbar. He is a professor of evolutionary psychology at the University of Oxford and co-author of The Social Brain, The Psychology of Successful Groups. Professor Dunbar is uh, an anthropologist and evolutionary psychologist, and he is in particular a specialist in primate behavior. You may or may not know that us humans, despite our best pretensions, are also primates. He's best known for formulating what's known as Dunbar's number. It is the measurement of the cognitive limit to the number of individuals with whom any one person can maintain stable relationships. His research concerns uh, trying to understand the behavioral and cognitive mechanisms that underpin social bonding in primates and humans. In this episode, Professor Dunbar and I talk about how evolution affects the dynamics of organizations, the seven pillars of friendship, the impact of work on personal relationships, and the observable changes in a sense of community over time. So let's get into it. Enjoy, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whichever medium you use. We're joined now by the Emeritus Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the Department of Experimental Psychology. That's a long title. Uh, at the University of Oxford, Robin Dunbar. Robin, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here. I'm a big admirer of your books and your work. Thank you for joining us here on the pod. Great pleasure to be with you. Where in the world exactly are you now? In the northwest of England. The nearest big city known to the world is probably Liverpool obviously famous for its music. We could say that Robin Dunbar is the sixth Beatle or the or the fifth Beatle. How many Beatles are there, actually? I'm not actually sure. <laughs> so, Technically, the fifth Beatle is Ringo Starr. <laughs> there was a drummer before him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about selling your shares too early, unfortunately. But uh, there you go. To be correct, the person who was known as the fifth Beatle was George Martin, their producer, who did all the whiz stuff, technical stuff. But um, there were two other Beatles in the early days. One died very young and the other got booted out. Robin, I mean, we've only just started chatting and I'm learning so much about the Beatles. I can't wait to actually get into your specialism, which is certainly not music history, but like I would love to have you on my pub quiz team. I think it'd be a, a strong addition. So Robin, I mean, we're primarily here to talk about your new, new-ish book. I think it came out last month or a few months back, The Social Brain, The Psychology of Successful Groups, which you uh, co-authored alongside Tracy Camilleri and Sam Rocky. When did it come out exactly? It came... it came out in March. March, that's right. It's a fascinating, fascinating book, and I think it has big applications for our listeners uh, here. You've definitely heard the colloquialism, like it's not personal, it's just business. This idea of like it, these two things being very, very discreet entities, our private lives, our social lives, and the workplace. You would say, and correct me if I'm making an assumption on your part, that this is a misapprehension that lots of people have. Yes, I think the message of the book really is that the workplace is a social world in itself. And of course, it engages with the wider world outside through selling 
products or uh, services to people out there. And that's a social process. I guess the kind of um, sales team have always known that. And there are plenty of tricks of the trade uh, that have been suggested over years for kind of salespeople to engage better with their um, clients. The fact is that the factory or the business or the organization, indeed, whether it's a school or a hospital or a government department or a business, doesn't really matter. That in itself is a social world. And this really came out of a kind of convergence of interests and a meeting of minds between myself, having sort of spent a lot of time thinking about and studying social evolution, the nature of human social organizations and human friendships. And my two co-authors, Sam and Tracy, who are coming at this as practitioners in business organization advisory capacities. So they are people who spend a lot of time going around advising, you know, some of these, the very big companies actually, and, and also running this very successful course for senior management. I mean, you know, this sort of C-suite people at the Oxford Business School, which is, you know, hugely popular, but is kept very small to make it very personalized and, and allow the dynamics of the people involved who are coming in as strangers to just evolve naturally in that context. And I guess that's a kind of metaphor for their view. And that, you know, their view here is based on practice and observation you know, at the shop, on the shop floor, if you like. But it's a kind of metaphor for how businesses uh, should w- work if they want them to work better. So I think the essence of the book is saying, look, you know, the last 50 years or so has been dominated by the view of the accountants. You know, anything we can count up <laughs> in terms of profit and loss and dividends for shareholders, that's what matters. And the answer we're suggesting is actually it may not be the most important thing if you you know that may be a beneficial byproduct if you get the dynamics of the organization itself right and there's lots of things one obviously one can say about that but that's the sort of core message to the book it's the organization as a village you say in the book that you know you make mention of the fact that we have non-negotiable constraints linked to brain size, time, and underlying hormonal responses, which is interesting because it's that you are pointing to actual biology when you're talking about how evolution affects the dynamics of organizations. Tell us a little bit more about that. This really goes back to, I suppose, the nature of sociality and primates in general and humans in particular, humans just being one small corner of the zoological family of of the primates, the monkeys and apes. The same kind of underpinning constraints and biology apply to us uh, as they do in all monkeys and apes, but obviously on a bigger scale because we have bigger brains. So this comes up in really two respects. One is the constraints on the size of social network we can maintain. So essentially the number of friends you can have This is limited across primates in general by the size of their brains and in humans, you know, equally so. And the limit in humans is about 150 people, give or take a few around the edge. If you kind of uh, get your numbers right in general in terms of the structure of an organization, then 
it seems it's going to work better. And in fact, we've just published a paper today showing that these numbers that make up what we might think of as the Dunbar series rather than the Dunbar number actually are points of optimal efficiency in information flow around networks. So your social world looks a bit like the ripples on a pond where you throw a stone in. So if you imagine that you're the stone, the ripples running out from you clearly increase in in, uh, width, implying more and more people are included, but the wave height gets lower and lower. So the quality of the relationships declines as you go further out. But those waves seem to occur at very specific numbers. The boundary number is this 150. This is the limit on the number of people you can have meaningful relationships with, and therefore that you kind of unthinkingly do favors for if you were asked. Once you go beyond that number, things become much more transactional and and, uh, the accountants can have a field day. But within that community, you tend to do favors out of a sense of obligation. So the actual numbers have a very specific sizes. They occur at 5, 15, 50, 150, and so on. And it seems as though if you get, for a particular task, if you get the right number for the task on a sort of horses for courses principle, then things will work much better. The dynamics of the group will work much better if you sort of are off-center and somewhere in, in between two layers, two numbers. Things just fall apart. It's um, really quite extraordinary. That's one key aspect of it. The other key aspect of it is how you create these relationships because it's not just a matter of having a brain of a certain size. It's the dynamics of the relationships that are important and how you create this sense of bonding and sense of obligation and trust, essentially. And that comes through triggering activities that trigger the endorphin system in the brain, which seems to be the main kind of neurohormone in the brain that's underpinning long-term bonding. Exploiting the kind of behaviors that we use in everyday life, our everyday social lives, for creating those groups, let's say our normal weekend activities, as it were, for creating of out-of-work social um, groupings, apply just as much within. And these tend to be things like you know, eating together and singing and dancing and storytelling and all these kinds of things, which are the kind of toolkit we have for social bonding. And all of these activities trigger the endorphin system. So you, you kind of get for free a bonded social group if you implement that. And I guess the sort of second <laughs> message in the book in some senses is these are exactly the kinds of things which nobody wants to count in the boardroom. And certainly the accountants don't want to count them because they can't see the profit and the loss. You know, And so therefore they get ignored. And as a result, no effort is put into you know, sort of making the appropriate arrangements for communal eating, let's say, or, or, or having a bit of downtime, social time with the people you work with. And our argument is if you take the, the gamble of actually investing in these kind of social activities, the productivity will just go up for free, basically. And of course, if productivity goes up for free, your profits go up for free. It's an interesting one too, because I mean, like, so we talk about how the workplace is a village and, you know, in many respects, it's its own like community. That obviously also comes with 
its own baggage. Like like any community comes with its own baggage. You know, you think about sort of internal rivalries and um, you know dysfunctional group dynamics that can occur just in your average neighborhood or in your average family. That these also occur in the workplace. So, in a certain sense, would you say that from your perspective, those kinds of things are inevitable? Like, if I think about lots of people have the aim of sort of like you know, we need to eliminate silos or we're going to kind of reach this kind of utopian level where we're all just going to get along wonderfully and this this function is going to be done away with entirely. But is that impossible? And what should we do about it instead? I think the short answer is it's impossible if you don't bother to do anything about it. That's the kind of default. So that then raises the question of, well, can we get around this, this impasse, if you like, uh, and find solutions that allow us to overcome it. And I, at that point, the answer is much more positive. Yes, there are things we can do. The problem seems to arise really in the, the fact that our ability to manage relationships is so limited, that the number of relationships we can manage at any one time is so limited, that there is a strong tendency for us to prefer as friends and even as family members. We apply the same rule to family members. But to prefer as friends people who are very similar to us in, in how they think and how they view the world and you know what they like and dislike and all these kinds of things. So this is known as the homophily effect, which has only been discovered within the last really 15 years at most, I would say. But turns out to be the single best predictor of who your friends are, as it were. Now, a lot of some of these things are built in in biological and we can't do anything about them. And we just have to learn to kind of cope with them, if you like. But a large part of them come down to a set of cultural things which are learned and, you know, therefore change somewhat uh, through the course of life. And these are what we refer to as the seven pillars of friendship. They're kind of like a supermarket barcode of the community you belong to. And you, instead of having them stamped on your forehead, you speak them. So the moment you empty, open your mouth, within seconds, I know if you belong to my community. It takes a little while to, because that's based on language and the dialect you use. You know, whoop, I can tell that you grew up in the same town as I did. Whereas um, some of the others, uh, for example, um, they include things like musical taste and sense of humor and so on. Those may take a little bit more fishing to to dig out. And it probably takes, when we meet somebody new in the social world, it probably takes a, about a, a month of intensive social work, in effect, interviewing, you might say, um, although we, we wouldn't dare to call it that. Getting to know somebody and trying to figure out where they lie on these seven pillars. And that happens quite fast. We, we've just published a paper uh, about a month or so ago showing that we can predict on the basis of the frequency of telephone calls between two people in the first month after meeting how close that relationship will be and how long it will last. And that first month is them sorting out how closely aligned they are on these, these seven pillars of friendship. So in some sense, there's something important in there in terms of organizational culture if you want to overcome these silos. Because actually, although these seven pillars are designed to handle friendships, they turn out to be what we have exploited historically to create our mega communities. So they're sort of like a, a statement of, of who we are and why we're here and, and you know, why we view the world the way we do. And those kind of criteria 
then offer an opportunity for organizations to kind of set up a culture, as it were, that isn't these wretched mission statements that people insisted on putting up in their f- foyers <laughs> for, for the last several decades. But these are much, much deeper than that, that have a sort of sense of the history of the organization and what they're there for and what purpose do they serve in the world, not just in terms of money-making, but in terms of a service to the community. You know, whether you make bits and, bits and pieces for something or produce a service, that that is a contribution to the wider community and it's understanding that that becomes important. And these then become the kind of myths of the organization and they become like a sort of totem pole on the village green that everybody can hang their hats on and say, yeah, we sign up to all these, we belong, this is us, you know. And there's some very interesting work that's come out of looking at the difference between organizations and companies that have survived a long time, known in that particular trade as uh, centennial companies that have survived for at least 100 years as independent businesses, the ones that have gone to the wall. And this is reflecting on the fact that in the last 30, 40 years, the rate of turnover in Dow Jones and, and FTSE companies in terms of their disappearance, you know, great companies that were there and had been around for a while and just vanish overnight uh, because they're broken up and uh, and so on, um, it is precisely that the companies that survive, the organizations that survive, have this sense of purpose, which is a social purpose. We are making a contribution to the, the wider community out there. We're not just here to, to make money for, for our shareholders. And then we have this sort of sense of, of origin. You know, there's the best origin stories are always the ones that start out with two guys that, you know, knocked something together in their, their garage uh, because they thought it was a good idea and got turned down by every bank and funding agency under the sun. They struggled against the world and they triumphed and produced this wonderful product. You know, that always creates this sort of sense of uplift and, no, no, you know, this is business nirvana we're dealing with. One of the interesting points that's made in the book is around different group sizes having different applications, I guess, in a workplace setting. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that in terms of how people should think more critically about literally the number of like bodies they're setting to a task. This goes back, I mean, some of these kind of rules are quite well known in a casual sense in the business community, I think. So one of the things that comes up here is, you know, well, what's the function? You're putting a, a group together in your organization. What's the function of that group? Because that function determines as the first step how well the people on in that working party have to work together. How well do they have to gel at a personal level for the uh, process that they're engaged in to, to flow efficiently? And that's a very different thing to what if you want uh, a group to throw ideas around, um, you know, and come up with some blue skies uh, innovations, which nobody's ever thought about before. Now, just to take those two examples, the dynamics of the group are very, very different because a group that's having to solve a specific problem, as in design a piece of kit or design some software or, or 
whatever it might be, has to be able to work very efficiently together without having to stop all the time and explain some arcane detail of of what they're doing to an outsider who doesn't understand it. So the logic of that is you want a small group and a small group of people who are all on the same page. You don't want to set a group up which says, mm, yes, well, the, the, you know, the human resources folk are going to get very offended if we don't include them in it. So we better have somebody on the system. Oh, we better have somebody from, from accounts, otherwise they'll go ballistic. The answer is you've got to resist those temptations. You've got to keep it very, very small and let it have some autonomy and just get on with the job. Whereas if the purpose of the group is kind of throwing ideas about and blue skies thinking, then what you do need is diversity of backgrounds and experiences, because that's where these kind of novel ideas will come up. It's the intersection. If you have everybody on the same page, they will just come up with the same ideas. But what you want is somebody from outside uh, your particular discipline who can look over the parapet and go, well, actually, this reminds me of something we deal with in in this other field, and, and maybe the same kinds of solutions would apply, or can just kind of go, oh, actually, you know, if you think about it in this left field way, it all makes perfect sense in a completely different way. And if you look at the breakthroughs in science, it's very often that kind of second mixing of experiences that comes through as the driving force of innovations. So those are the sort of two obvious things. Like the the other key lesson here really is to think in terms of this fractal structure of organizations so that you know you want to keep your unit sizes, say your your departments, I guess, you know, not bigger than 150, otherwise they will start to fall apart, literally, because um, people simply won't have time to build relationships of trust and obligation with each other. You want to have them subdivided into smaller units. So now, you know, by extension, if you have a very big organization with 30,000 employees scattered around the world, these rules apply. You know, you want to keep your sub, you want to have it fractally structured into subgroupings of 150 or so. I mean, some companies have done this for uh, several years and it is claimed to have been very successful precisely because of this. But you know, it's it's something that's not widely done. There's a tendency to assume that, well, you know, if, if you need 500 architects, you've got to get 500 architects and put them all in a room. If you need 500 accountants, you've got to have 500 accountants in the whole room. The answer is not, because what will happen is these silos will build up amongst them and you'll end up with three groups of 150, which instead of having been thought through by you as the organizer, have sort of assembled themselves because... They happen to like golfing together or they happen to like Led Zeppelin music or something completely irrelevant to the organization. That's a very interesting point because like, it's funny, I played rugby my entire life and even in a small squad, what you'll find is there will be that degree of like that homophily effect of like, even within that small kind of environments, people not like, it won't disintegrate to the extent that you talked about in like a large organization, but people will kind of start like sort of naturally in a healthy way, I guess, kind of forming their own little pods. The sport's kind of broken up between forwards and backs and like you'll kind of like hang over the forwards and that kind of stuff. Our inclination is so strong towards that. The answer seems to be yes. Um, it's almost impossible to avoid it. So you have to manage it is the point. And it will not have escaped you as a rugby player that the uh, size of a rugby team is 15, which is bang on the right number. <laughs> perfect. I've always said it's the perfect sport. 
<laughs> but you divide it into subgroups, so forwards and backs, as you observed. You know, there is a, a perennial problem within that because obviously, I mean, okay, you know, a sort of local rugby team or any sport, as it were, doesn't really matter. For the local village, everybody already knows each other. The problems emerge when you have, let's say, a higher level teams being put together, let's say the national teams, and you've got people from widely different uh, ends of a country who've never met before. You know, how do you create a team uh, out of that? And I, I, I was very struck by some of the stuff that Owen Eastwood has done, who's a kind of cultural coach for national sport teams. So he's worked with the All Blacks, he's worked with the UK Olympic uh, teams, he's worked with the South African Springboks. And just two little things that of his observations, which I thought were really very telling in this context, is when he was working with the Springboks, because it's a mix of people, you know, sort of Afrikaans-speaking, English-speaking, and he said everything worked fine until the captain had to go off. They were off training in France or somewhere like that, you know, outside the country. Then the captain had to go off. I think it was the right um, occasion. Captain had to go off to uh, fly back home because he had some family matters, urgent family matters to deal with. And he said the team just split into three different <laughs> groups of, of people immediately who didn't talk to each other. And he said it, it took him a lot of hard work to get them back to gel. And it was just the charisma of the captain, I suppose, that was holding it together. And by the same token at the opposite end, he said, and this was his very first experience in this area, he said when he worked with the All Blacks, New Zealand All Blacks, he said, they explained to him, when somebody starts playing for the first time for the All Blacks, the first thing they do with them is take them around the boardroom and introduce them to all their ancestors right back to the first 1903 team. The photographs are on the wall. And they say, look, this is your family. And he said it has an immensely strong bonding thing because you just feel like you're being brought into the family and, you know, you're one of one of the um, family. And, and in some sense, you know, a lot of these mechanisms for creating good organizations are precisely like that. They need to create this sense of family because that sense of family obligation you then have that you'll be prepared to help somebody else out from another division because they're family, out of obligation to family. So you're sort of creating a fictional family. <laughs> but it works. And of course, we do that all the time in language. I mean, in English, uh, there's this long-standing tradition of referring to female friends of the parents as auntie in particular, sometimes uncle, but particularly auntie, so it seems not to be so common these days. But there was that sense of bringing your friends into the family, and the children saw these people, often didn't distinguish between, between people who are genuine artists by blood, as it were, and um, fictional kin in this sense. But it created this sense of being part of the family. So that seems to be a very strong motivation. I think the message of a lot of this stuff is exploiting these natural components of how we behave in ways that we do all the time, actually, out there in real life, to create these mega communities 
in a kind of fictional sense. And it really does seem to work. And the ones where this is particularly successful, actually, is religion in churches. And the big denominations create this sense of belonging to this big family. And it's all done. <laughs> it's a kind of fiction. But it works. And it works in a very simple way. And you kind of go, you know, these are the kinds of very, very simple. You, I might refer to them as tricks, but, you know, they're a bit more than, than mere tricks. Simple strategies for creating this sort of bonded village tribe sense, as it were, in, in the workforce. It's interesting, though, if you go back to the late 19th century, early 20th century, say through to the 30s at the very least, a lot of the big companies that we have now, the Leverhumes and Cadbury's of this world, actually did this, whether they intended now, I think they intended to do it. The people who set these companies up had a very strong sense of their businesses as communities, and, and they invested a lot of money in creating clubs and tennis clubs and debating clubs and music clubs and stuff on their factory sites because they figured that you know this was people being able to engage with each other away from the shop floor and away from the hierarchies because everybody bonded. The railway clubs were very, very famous all over the world for this because, you know, each station had its club and no matter who you were, if you worked at that station, whether you were the engine driver or the station manager or what, you were a member of that club. And people then engaged and talked to each other and built up these sense of trust and obligation in each other in a way which somehow was lost. Of course, tennis clubs are not so, such a popular activity now as they were back in the 1930s when tennis was extremely popular. But there are other ways of doing it. We just have to sort of think, you know, what would work in the present climate? And, and, and you know, some places have done it. I gather Facebook have something similar, you know, at once a week, uh, everybody goes into the sort of space in the centre of their campus and, you know, they have a few beers and, and a barbecue. There are other nice examples that uh, you'll have read in the book um, from S.A.B. Miller, the South African Brewers, in how they, you know, had, as it were, in the foyer of every, every uh, building they had or every campus they had, you know, a bar. Of course, it sold their beer, but people uh, stopped by and had a beer at five o'clock on their way home to work. And you know, met new people in different departments, chatted with each other. And Sam Rocky, who actually worked for S.A.B. Miller during that period, said some of those, the Facebook groups that were set off off the back of that are still going as Facebook, active Facebook groups 20 years later, <laughs> even though these people have sort of disappeared to, you know, every corner of the world and are doing nothing to do with S.A.B. Miller anymore. <laughs> I was wondering, uh, just hearing you talk about these civic institutions that I guess were a lot more common, whether you had ever read the the book Bowling Alone by uh, Robert Putnam. It's a wonderful book where he talks a lot about this, I guess, not just the, the well, there's no other way to put it, like collapse of, uh, you know, sort of communal institutions in, in everyday life. He talks specifically in the American context, but I think it's as applicable here in the UK as, as most other places. There definitely seems to be a even more so now, a very intense yearning for the sense of community, mainly because it's just so much rarer, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's clear that the sort of things that have happened in the modern world in the last 50, 70 years, you know, have changed what's possible. So we've shifted from 
what you might think of as a village community life to a much more individual family level life locked within four walls of the family home, as it were. And that's partly been driven clearly by television and what's available and and other forms of entertainment that that you can engage in at home, which are cheap, of course, and less effort. You don't have to traipse halfway across London to go and see a film or, or, or a concert or something. But also, uh, clearly, cheap alcohol in supermarkets, which means you can do stuff at home. Indeed, I suppose, cheap and more exotic foods, which mean you can entertain at home, either yourself sitting in front of your television with a beer or entertaining friends in a way which has not really been possible before, except perhaps for the ultra-rich living in their country houses. Whereas in the past, if you wanted entertainment, you had to go out to the what was provided by the community, whether it's the community hall for a dance or a debate or, you know, a, a tennis club for some tennis or whatever. Now, yes, okay, you can do those things, but by and large, you know, the cheap and easy thing to do is just to sit at home. And I think that's broken this sense of community a great deal. And of course, also the greater mobility we have now. I mean, people have always moved, particularly for jobs or for opportunities in the past, but it's happening on a mega scale. So most people's social networks are sort of completely distributed. Their social 150, as it were, are distributed all over the country, if not the globe. And the ease with which you can go around the corner and knock on somebody's door and say, I'm bored, let's go and have a beer, is much reduced because we're all living among strangers. So the question is, how do you reconstitute the sense of village life, which creates this sense of meaning. In many ways, the obvious place to do it is work because (laughs) we spend most of our week actually at work. And most of the people we work with are actually quite nice. And we have something in common with them just by virtue of working there. And I think this is especially uh, important for that group of people everybody forgets about, which is new starters. (laughs) And in two respects these days, one is the 20-somethings age group coming to their first job after graduating from university because your your social world has been handed to you on a plate up to then. You know, family, village, school. You go to university, you're all in halls of residence. You know, you've got a naturally made group of friends. Then you suddenly get a job in London or any other big city where you've never been before. You don't know where to, people go to meet uh, like-minded folk. The only people you know of the folks you work with, and they've already got busy lives. They've got home lives. To, they want to get home to put the kids to bed or whatever. Uh, they've already got their circle of friends. You know, to take somebody else on means they've got to dump somebody from that. And, you know, clearly that's that's a hard thing to ask. So you end up with this pandemic of loneliness in that cohort that, that seems to have been growing over the last 15, even 20 years, actually, and just getting worse and worse. Um, but also, given the mobility of the workforce, international mobility of the workforce these days, you know, you've got a problem elsewhere in a group of people who you might not expect to face this problem. So, you know, if you're coming in from a middle management or senior management level from, from another country and being sort of parachuted in or you've applied and got a, got a, got, got a job, um, you know, you're being parachuted not only into a different culture, which you've got to kind of master, maybe even a different language, but you've also been parachuted into a, a kind of 
social environment where you, you don't know anybody, you don't know where you should go to meet people uh, who, who might potentially become friends. And we just kind of ignore all these, these effects. And, and it's no wonder that people end up becoming depressed and staying at home and not coming into work. So the number of days lost through just, you know, the effects of loneliness and depression and therefore the amount of, you know, money thrown down the drain is phenomenal. And, you know, and companies have kind of been latterly spending huge quantities of money trying to, you know, find sticking plaster type solutions to people's mental health problems. And we in our book kind of look at this and go, what are you doing? The solution is obvious and it's going to cost you a tenth of what you're spending on professional, you know, sort of consultancies and professional uh, medical people and the like. All you've got to do is to find somebody who's good at organizing parties, essentially, or social events, of, you know, not necessarily parties uh, because they have a downside too, but organizing the kinds of social events that people would like to, would enjoy doing, you know, on a, perhaps of a weekend or even taking a whole day off work and the whole company going off somewhere and, I don't know, walking in the mountains together or something like that. But, you know, those solutions exist and they're often very, very cheap and would be much, much better than, than anything else. I mean, the, the two that spring to mind, singing is always a wonderful thing. We, we call it the um, icebreaker effect because an hour of community singing, you know, and I don't mean, you know, Bach cantatas or anything fancy. I just mean Gareth Malone, you know, uh, military wives, sitting around the campfire type singing songs everybody knows. You know, an hour of that kind of singing turns complete strangers into people who think they've known each other since childhood practically, telling each other their life histories, building friendships. So, you know, and that's been done in, in one or two places. The Norwegians have tried it in hospitals and it's made a big, big, big difference there. Eating together is another simple thing to arrange, you know, in fact, and having a sort of good quality communal dining room, cafeteria, as it were, restaurant, where people come because the food is good <laughs> and preferably cheap or free. People will come. If, if you do that, people will go rather than sit at their desks eating their sandwiches, you know, and, and they will end up in casual conversation. And things will develop organically then because you can't make people be friends. This is, in some sense, the problem with our kind of generic diversity uh, strategies. You know, it's all very well having so many people of different kinds in your organization, but that's not going to make them get on with each other. Uh, you've got to provide and gel with each other and work together better. You've got to actually actively work at building this sort of culture of social engagement. Really interesting stuff, Robin. Thank you so much. Uh, just as a as a parting question, and I guess this is one that more kind of applies to uh, one of your previous books, uh, Friends, which I can highly recommend to anyone listening to this. Which is so many of our listeners on this podcast uh, will be uh, very ambitious people. So people who, if they're not C suite already, want to get there one day. We think about what that kind of ambition comes with: you know, long hours, a degree of physical and emotional absence, uh, what sort of impact can this have on our closest personal relationships? And thinking specifically around your point on the role that proximity, like literal proximity plays uh, in our closest relationships. 
Yes. It just comes down in the end to the fact that most of our social effort and our mental effort and our emotional effort, our emotional capital, if you like, is devoted to a very small number of very important people in our lives. So 40% of our total social time, our available social time, is devoted to just five people, the five people in the inner core circle of very close family and, and friend relationships, typically about five people, who, the layer we call the shoulders to cry on friends because they're the only ones who will actually drop the baby and come and pick you up when you knock on their door and say, my world's fallen apart, as it were. In other words, they're prepared to put themselves out to put you back on your feet. Uh, as you go further out in your layer of relationships, they become less and less willing to do that, but you're investing less time in them. The next layer out that includes the five in the, in the center, so it adds another 10 people, is 15 layer, so-called sympathy group. That accounts for about 60% of our total social in investment. It's extraordinary how much we invest in these people. And it, in order to keep those relationships working and going and keep them up to speed. So the lesson here in some sense is, you have to make room somehow, and it's not easy, we understand that, but you have to make room, you know, for those close people in your family because, you know, sooner or later, you'll probably need them badly. And if you haven't invested in them, they're not going to do it. So my observation on this is just try it, you know, go out into a street somewhere and throw your arms around the first stranger you see and say, my world has fallen apart. Uh, I need you to help me. And I'll bet you as many cases of champagne as you like, that what they'll do is reach into their pocket, get their mobile phone out and phone either the ambulance or the police. But if you do that to one of your core friends, <laughs> you'll get a completely different response. And the difference is simply the sense of obligation that's created by how much time you've invested in them as individuals. In the C-suite level, you have to find ways of sharing your time and not micromanaging everything. That's where the disaster comes, I think, because you destroy everything. You try and micromanage the whole of a big organization. Not only do you make a hash of that because it's too big, but you also don't have any time left over for your family uh, relationships and so on. And they fall apart. Uh, so you've got to trust the people you work with as it were, below you, in the layers below you, to do their job. And that has to be the culture. There are places where that happens. You have this sense of trust and obligation, and people work willingly, as it were, and overwork maybe willingly, not for the money they're paid, but you know, out of a sense of pride and obligation for the job they do. If you encourage that kind of attitude again, which used to be much more common than you don't have to worry about what's going on down below because that's being taken care of in the layers below you. You can sit back and deal with strategy, which is what C-suite folks should be really concerned with because uh, and sparing yourself enough time at the corners of the day to invest in your own kind of family and social environments. Fantastic stuff. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been fascinating. You can get uh, Professor Dunbar's new book, which he co-authored alongside Tracy Camilleri and Sam Rocky, The Social Brain, 
the psychology of successful groups. It's a really fascinating read, especially for anyone in leadership in any workplace or organization. I can, like I said earlier, I can also highly recommend uh, Professor Dunbar's other book, Friends. Are you on social media of any variety? Uh, is there is there a place where people can connect with you? Not really. I do exist on, on LinkedIn because my children years ago said I should join it. And occasionally I post things up like podcasts and, and books when they come out and so on. But aside from that, I mostly avoid social media. I don't blame you at all. I think it's wise. I think it's wise. Thank you very much for your time today. And uh, yeah, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you. It's been great fun. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel your growth. Learn more at soldo.com.